Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Good morning, brothers, sisters, and, and friends. I hope that you all are doing well uh, this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 6, or the sixth Psalm, or Psalm 6, right? Either way, it's going to take you to the same place. Psalm 6, and we're continuing in our summer in the Psalm series with just a couple more uh, with just a couple more psalms. So as we looked at Psalm 6 this morning, we want to make sure that we understand, once again, as we've been saying over the last couple weeks, that Psalm 6, like Psalm 5 and Psalm 4 and Psalm 3, seem to be written under the same historical context as Psalm 3, right? Psalm 3 had the superscription of when David fled from his son Absalom, who was trying to, who was trying to kill him and take his throne. Now, we're going to read Psalm 6 in just a minute, but when we read Psalm 6, I want you to hear some things, and I want you to hear how much Psalm 6 has the same kind of language as Psalm 2. Now, I know that's a ways back now, thinking about Psalm 2, but the language seems to be the same, the same kind of words and, 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 and verbs and nouns that, that David used in Psalm 2 toward the raging nations that will receive justice and be judged by, by the Lord. Now he's pleading to the Lord to not treat him the way that Psalm 2 says that the Lord is going to treat his enemies. His enemies, he says, that he will laugh at them in derision, that he will respond in his wrath and his fury, that with a broken rod of iron he will dash the pieces of like, in, like pots, right? That would be death there in Psalm 2. But as we read, I'm going to read just a second, you'll hear David pleading not to be treated like the wicked. Let's look to Psalm 6. We have a lot to cover this morning from this short psalm, but a lot to say. Psalm 6, verse 1. To the choir master with the stringed instruments according to the Shunammoth, of a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. 
Like we have said from the beginning of our study in the Psalms, the church loves the Psalms. If we don't, we should. Christians love the Psalms. Individual Christians, we, we love the Psalms. We love turning to the Psalms. The Psalms are some of the most quoted passages in all the Bible. In fact, Jesus quotes more of the Psalms than just about anything else of the Old Testament. We love to read the Psalms on Sunday mornings in our gatherings. And we've been studying them together. And even though we're just at the beginning, Psalm 6 out of 150, since Psalm 3, there's been this downward spiral of emotions and feelings that David is revealing and exposing in his prayers. And Psalm 6 it certainly does not sound like a psalm of joy or a psalm of praise or a psalm of thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord. Right? It's a song of thanksgiving like many of the other psalms that we like. But as we have read it, we can hear that Psalm 6 is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of grief. It's a psalm of sorrow and Emotional pain and anguish. And if you, can't, if you couldn't hear that, go ahead and read it again and tell me that you can play that to an uptown, uptown beat. The early church used this psalm to be a part of a package of seven psalms of confession. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, 38, 51, 102, 30, 130, and 143. And often these psalms were reserved to be read on Ash Wednesday during the Passion Week for corporate confession and the repentance of sin. But it's not just these seven psalms, but if you read, if you've had the opportunity and the chance to read through the whole Psalter uh, with, a, with a, little bit more, um, a little more detail and paying attention a little bit more, you'll read that, that the Psalter is filled more with lament then it is filled with rejoicing. And Psalm 6 makes then a very important point for us this morning. That in this psalm of lament, it's telling us a lot about life. Some of the most important times of our lives are certainly times of rejoicing and times of great joy. Celebrating Jameson's birthday last night was a lot of fun. Celebrating your wedding in a couple weeks is going to be great. Miss Susan's birthday. Happy birthday, Miss Susan. It's times to rejoice and great joy, but some of the most important times, though, in our lives actually come during time of struggle. They come during times of suffering. They come during times of pain. They come during times of, of grief and hard repentance. And that takes us to lament. This is not a light psalm. It kind of doesn't fit our beachy summer in the psalm theme that we got on this slide, does it? It's more like the shark attack in the ocean. This is a psalm of lament. It's heavy. It's not a prayer against or exposing his enemies like we saw in the in the last Psalms, the enemies are there, the foes are there, but the object of torment is him. The object of, 
of anguish and grief is his is himself and for his own sin. The discipline that he knows that he is experiencing, he clearly understands is directed toward him is coming from the Lord. It's coming from the Lord. And again, back to the historical, uh, historical context, what seems to be happening here is, is David is feeling the full weight of his sin from the whole situation with Absalom, right? Which has is, which is stemmed from David's sin way back earlier with Bathsheba, that he committed adultery. He got her pregnant. And then he had her husband Uriah murdered. And if that... And that's all that he had to do. If that's all that to do, that he thought to himself, if I could just get this taken care of, cover all my bases, sweep it under the rug, then I will be free and clear. Again, he forgot about the Lord. The Lord sees and knows all. In the aftermath of that, after the Nathan prophet came to him, the aftermath of that was devastating. The death of the child that was conceived. And then later after that, the family, right, the strife that began in the family where Amnon took advantage of his sister Tamar. And then Absalom gets angry at Amnon and takes revenge by killing his brother for what he did. So here's David's son killing another one of his sons. And now Absalom pursuing David to kill him and to take his throne. These things are messed up. And this is exactly what the prophet Nathan told him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. That evil would rise up from his house and come against him and publicly shame him. And here he is, he's feeling this, right? This, this full weight of the Lord's discipline for his sin upon him. If you are a Christian, then you understand, I hope the weight of your sin and maybe sin from the past, and then you understand how sin ravages. That sin does have its consequences. And sometimes even discipline from the Lord. And even when we are disciplined, not for sin's sake, but for the sake of, of holiness and for sanctification, we understand that living in this age where sin is everywhere, we still are able, as a fallen nature, we face fear from within, that we worry, we get exhausted, we feel the pressures, and life gets really heavy in those times. You know, the Apostle Paul understood this weight. It wasn't from sin, but it was understanding difficulty. And he said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he said, For when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. When we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. You all understand this. But we are not always in a place where we want to rejoice. But rather, we're often in times where we need to lament. And we need to cry out to the Lord, maybe because of sin. And we're, we're feeling the weight of, of being disciplined by the Lord. Or the Lord is using hard things in life to purify us and to, and to sharpen us. 
Sometimes we, we don't like singing. We don't want to sing magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, but we actually really need to sing, whatever my God ordains is right. But what this psalm is directing us to is, yes, there will be languishing, as he says, and there will be difficulty, and sometimes it is a direct result of our sin, we will be disciplined, but also in Christ, we, will, we lament in those things with hope. We will lament with hope because the Lord hears our prayers, and in the end, he will turn it all around. One of the things that the Bible teaches us as Christians is that suffering and lament is not only real, but we should appropriately expect it. As elders, through preaching through God's word, the full counsel of God, our job is to teach you and to preach God's people about suffering. But in suffering and with suffering, what are we to do with it? Theologically, we can teach all day long about suffering. Biblically, we can teach all day long about about suffering, right? How we understand that, that God is sovereign and he is sovereign over everything and not one hair falls from our head that he has not ordained and that he has not decreed. Meaning, his sovereignty extends over our suffering, over our discipline and all of our pain. That is true. That is right. We can turn to to passages like Hebrews 12, and we can hear that from verse 7, that it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seems best for them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Is he sovereign over our suffering? Absolutely. And he is like a surgeon in our hearts. With the scalpel, he uses suffering and he uses discipline to remove the cancer of sinful desires. And how do we know that and why he does this? Why does he do this? We just, we just read it. He does this because he loves us. Did you hear that in the passage? He says, because you are sons. He doesn't discipline you because you are a slave, but because he's a son, because you are a son. You're not illegitimate children, but you are adopted by the blood of Christ. And he does so because he is our father. He doesn't leave us in the pit of sin or nominal belief. Why? Because he says and shows us that there is a hope that's greater than the place that you are existing now. Where there is no hope, where there is no joy, where there is no perseverance. And he drags us out, as loving fathers do, 
and it is for holiness so that we reflect and image the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we are teachable, hear me on that, if we are teachable, then that discipline will produce the fruit that is peaceful and righteous. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. Boy, does that sound good. Peace. I bet, I bet in fact, all of us want more of that. I, I want more of that, that peaceful fruit of righteousness, but do we want to pay the price for it? So we understand suffering theologically in these terms. We understand these things. And this is what the Bible teaches, and we agree with them. And it sounds good that through such discipline our Father loves us and is doing things, but still we kind of come back to the question, even in the midst of suffering and lament, what do we do with it? Even Hebrews doesn't sugarcoat it, does it? For in a moment, discipline seems painful. Painful rather than pleasant. One of our favorite preachers has told us that pain always hurts. So the answer then to the question, what do we do with it, is in Psalms like Psalm 6. These kinds of Psalms are what the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann calls Psalms of Disorientation. And the reason why he calls them that is because when we are suffering, when we are in pain, when we're in the midst of being disciplined like David, the truth is we feel disoriented, getting knocked around. And sometimes it makes us ask the question, why? Or stop. Why? How long, oh Lord? And that's why in David's prayer here, in his words, they're emotional, and they show us, then what do we do, informed by our theology, this is how we lament. This is how we turn to the Lord. He says in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, my soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So we see the direction of the psalm has changed, right? You see the direction and the pronouns have changed to me, I, me, me, I, me, my. And the situation is, is what has dictated that. Because this is how David now feels. He believes that God is angry with him and that God has turned his wrath to him that he thought was due to the wicked and he cries out for mercy for God to turn and to give him grace why because he is languishing now that's a good word languishing languishing means to wither to wither away think of a, a plant right a plant that is withering away because it doesn't have water think of a plant that that's withering away because there's no water and it's been out in the sun too long and its roots aren't deep and they're dry and brittle that's withering that's languishing so he appeals to the lord that in his languishing in his withering god come heal me 
come heal me. You're the one who's wounded me, so heal me. And three times in these verses, he uses the personal covenantal name of God. He uses Yahweh. Why? Because he knows the Lord, and he knows the Lord's heart. And he cries out for him to turn toward him and to heal him. His bones are troubled. You hear those language there? His bones are, are troubled, and his soul is greatly troubled. That deep down inside of him, he now can feel in his body what emotionally in his heart and in his soul he is bearing. The stress and pressure he is under. If you're under that kind of immense pressure and that much stress, how much that does on our bodies. That's why we go and we go to the doctor and if he checks our hearts and our hearts are off beat somehow, they want to ask, what kind of stress are you under? He is under the stress where he feels it in his bones and he's deeply troubled. And what he's troubled by is that he is terrified by the very own God's hand. Because once again, as we know from Hebrews 10, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. David wasn't the only one, though, who has been in the place, in that place. This is a prayer that is not all too different than some of the prayers we have heard later on. But our Lord Jesus Christ... When his face was turned toward the cross, he was gripped by the horror and the torture that the Lord had set before him. Isaiah 53 to Jesus began to become realer and realer. It was realer a real word? And real became more real, clear to him. Surely he has bore our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And a sheep before its shears was silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering of guilt. He shall see his offspring and, his, and, and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Does it make us wonder then when Jesus was in the garden that he sweat drops of blood and anguish? Could have, could have cried out as David did here in Psalm 6, How long, O Lord, how long? How long? You look at verse 4. David says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for, for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? You see, David could have just given up. He could have just said, Forget this. This isn't worth it. He could have just turned and sided with his enemies. He could have questioned the Lord. But instead, rather, he sticks to his convictions, the convictions of truth. And the truth is this, what we talked about last week, that God is good and that he is holy and that he sticks to his word because his word is true. 
And even in his protests here, he's calling out the Lord to turn and to set things right. Verse 4, he asked the Lord to turn. It's an interesting word here. Because this word is the same word used by the prophets to call Israel to repent. Is David calling God to repent? What does God have to repent of? Now, of course, David is not calling the Lord to repent, but it's telling us the seriousness of it. And our translations reflect that by saying turn instead of repent, thankfully. But he is suggesting that what he suffers is what his enemies deserve. And so he calls on Yahweh to turn from allowing these things to be like they are and to appeal to what? He appeals to what we talked about last week, to the steadfast love of the Lord. He appeals to God's loving kindness. He understands there's, there's nothing good that we deserve from God. We deserve nothing good from the Lord. We have given him absolutely no reason for him to love us. None. We come to the table with, with filthy rags, with our, our very best, our very own righteousness is filthy rags. Here you go, God. Love me. No. There's no reason for us to, for him to love us except for the very fact that he is love. And that he is steadfast in his love. And so as his people, we turn toward him and we appeal to him by his love. We do not pray, stop this, this discipline of the Lord because I deserve it. We appeal to his love. In verse 5, he adds the application. And the application is this, is to the Lord's concern of his own glory. If I die, who would remember you? Sounds a little dramatic, doesn't it? You know, if this kills me, who's going to give you praise? Who's going to rejoice? If I'm in Sheol, who's going to rejoice? Maybe a little dramatic, but certainly you can see the emotional toll on the suffering. It may sound irrational, but David has appealed to two different things here the loving kindness of God, and he's appealing for his deliverance and his rescue bound are on the grounds of God's glory. Save me for your love and save me for your glory. In verse 6, he says, I am weary with my moaning every night. My, my flood my bed with tears. I trench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And these verses are filled with lots of details of David's condition. Weary, moaning, a bed flooded with tears, right? You can see the, the language, the picture that's being painted here. A couch that is, that is drenched with, with weeping with eyes that are, that are swollen and bloodshot from crying and from grief. It doesn't take, us, take an Old Testament scholar to explain to us the details of what's happening here. We can read this in this kind of language, and we can understand that he is exhausted. He is depressed, and he has been weeping so much that he's broken emotionally in pain. 
It's to the point where there's no more tears left. If you've ever been to that point, there does get to the point where your tear ducts have no more. And it leaves your bed filled and flood and your couch drenched. This is a picture of brokenness. But imagine why those tears are there, why his blood, or why his, uh, his bed is, is filled with these tears. Because underneath it, yes, is the immediate of his son and those foes and the threats to kill him. But understanding this, that all of this has come about because of his own sin. Because of his own sin. There certainly have been times in my life where I can direct, directly excuse me, see the consequences of my sin. Where I have faced the consequences of my sin and been disciplined for my sin. And that's hard enough to deal with. But when I experience and see how my sin is reflected upon my own family and my own children, that's a whole other ballgame. That leads to brokenness. We should be as caring human beings and fathers and parents, if you are. We should be able to sympathize here. And this is why David cries out for rescue. Because he sees the effect of his own sin and what is happening on his own family and himself. But we also don't want to miss in these verses here that we see that that David has also been sinned against. That others are still personally responsible. God raised up the, the Babylonians to discipline and judge Israel as the Lord said he would do. But the Lord also judged the wicked Babylonians who were responsible for their wicked acts. We see in verse 8, the workers of evil in verse 10, all my enemies, the Lord doesn't tell David to just suck it up. He doesn't tell David to just grit and bear. He doesn't tell David to just bury it inside, put on a smile, and keep on. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the Psalms are so good for us to know, for us to understand this is why they're so good for us to be instructed because they show us how to feel and what to do when we feel this way. Society tells you two things. Culture teaches us two things. Again, to suck it up and deal with it. Get over it. Adversity will make you better. It's an opportunity to make you better. It also says, play the victim card. Play the blame game. Blame others for your problems. Blame others for your failures and for your own sin. But we do not see that here in Psalm 6 at all. But what I see here is that the Lord is showing us to come to him. To come to him and, and tell him all about it. To to come and, and tell him, right? It's, it's showing me that he is big enough to handle our suffering. That he is great enough to bear our weaknesses and our pain, even when we are in anguish and even when we are being disciplined. 
You see, our Father, He sees you, and He understands all of our confusion. He understands your confusion. He understands your questions. He doesn't sweep them under the rug like some puny, weak, little, ineffectual God, but He wants you to bring them to Him. He can handle it because He's a big boy. He doesn't sweep them under the rug. He is a loving Father, and like a loving Father that disciplines His children, with his hands, right? He disciplines with them with his hands and he corrects them so that he can redirect their child from disobedience and from sin to joy and to obedience. And yet also with the same hands, the loving father can hold his child's hand and then give them a hug. It's the same father. In the same way, so come. And how thankful we should be that these kinds of psalms are there. And most of them are like this. Because we need to be reminded over and over and over again that even when in our languishing, even when we are being disciplined, even in our sufferings of living in a fallen world, even when the enemies and foes are abounding against us. David, yes, is a good example of this. But brothers and sisters, how much more than David was our Savior, Jesus Christ, as our example? Who would trust in the fist Father, and when still come pleading before him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may not be in that place of suffering or discipline today. Praise God. I'm thankful for that. And by God's grace, you may have not, never been in that place. Or maybe you are. But one thing we all can know, no matter where we are, that we can cast our cares upon him. We can cast our fears and our griefs, our troubles upon the Lord. He can handle it, and he does not ignore it. And that brings us to our second point this morning, and, and, and that is he hears our prayers. So through all this pain and through all this lament, there's this key change that takes place there at the end of the, at the, end of the song from a, from a minor key to a major key with a sudden burst of, of hope and confidence, and that is the Lord again, he hears our prayers. You might remember in Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, David prays. His prayer request is that God would, would, the Lord would answer his prayers and be gracious to hear him, to give ear to his word and to his groaning, to give attention to the sound of his cry. But here in verse 8, he is saying that the Lord has heard and has accepted my prayers. It's like out of a, out of a dry, dead stump shoots up hope from roots that are firmly found in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And after pleading for help and healing and turning from anger, there in the first seven verses, he says this in verse 8. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And like we said earlier, there's, there is 
another indictment here of those who those workers of evil against David. And why should they flee? Why should these workers of, of evil and iniquity, why should they flee? Is it because David told them to? No. It's because the Lord has heard his prayer. It's because the Lord has, has heard his prayer and has heard his weeping. Verse 8 is quite a significant verse. Verse 8 is a significant verse because Jesus quotes this verse on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus, the king of kings, is saying what David was warning, that on the last day that Jesus will banish all the wicked. He will banish all the wicked. And in the first point, we said that Jesus, he understood our suffering. He understands our suffering because he suffered and he died on the cross, not for the punishment for his own sin, but he was sinless and he suffered in our place as our substitute. But the anguish of the cross was not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story because he would rise from the dead and on the third day ascend to the Father and now reigns at his right hand. And one day, as he promised, he will come back and he will judge the world and he will purge everyone who is, does evil and wickedness. This verse is pointing us toward that and to that glorious day when the workers of lawlessness will be judged. But verse 8 and verse 9, the end of verse 8 into verse 9, shows us something really amazing, that repetition can communicate relief and confidence. And that comes across here. Three times he says how the Lord will answer his prayer. How does he now have this, this burst of confidence? Where does it come from? How did we hear such languishing in the first seven verses to, to now this? From did, did, did God just come to him like in a moment and whisper in his ear and tell him? No. If that's the case, they would have been in the psalm. And God whispered and told me, right? Did David write those first seven verses and then afterwards come back and describe how the Lord answered his prayer later and then write these verses? No, because if you look at verse 10, it seems to indicate that his deliverance from his enemies haven't happened yet. You see the word shall. It hasn't happened yet. But when I tell you, right, in this point, that's the point that I'm making, is that when, is that when I tell you that when God hears our prayers, you should ask your question, how do you know? How do, you, how do you know that that is true? Will you just take my word for it when you're in the darkest times of your life? The answer to this question, how do we know, is built right within this psalm. The answer how we know the Lord answers our prayers is built with right within this psalm because as David is praying, he's recalling the truths of God's word and God's promises to him. First, we see it 
And seven times throughout this psalm, he repeats the personal covenant name of God again, Yahweh. And that means something. Like when we're saying Heavenly Father, we're declaring something very theological, something very true, that Yahweh is personal. It's not abstract. It's not just some other God. We can use the word God, and it can mean a pantheon of gods in this world. But when we say Yahweh, we mean God of the Scriptures, the only God, the one who has revealed himself to Moses and said, when Moses asked, who shall I say send me? And God says, I am. That's who it is. And he remembers by saying the very name of God, God's commitment to his own glory and his commitment to his people and to his promises. And as David is honest about his life that is just spiraling out of control, and he's facing suffering and discipline. We need to understand that these are the things, that when we go through these things, remembering the truths of who our God is and his promises and his glory, and he works all things out according to his glory, we remember these things because these are the very things by which grace and faith and confidence flows. It flows nowhere else but through this truth. So when we are spiritually broken and we're emotionally a wreck and exhausted and disoriented like David, in the very act of crying out to God in prayer, remembering who he is, our Heavenly Father, remembering his grace and his mercy, his mercy is rehearsing his promises and all that he does in his love. And that is how we know he hears our prayers. Now, we might be tempted to say, but David's the king. Of course, God hears David's prayers. He's the king. He had David anointed and was with David. I'm just a Christian. I'm just one in a billion. Why would he answer me? Why would he hear me? And if your confidence is just in you and it's just about you, then you're right. Why would he hear you? Why would he answer you? But as Christians, we have more confidence because we have Jesus Christ. We have Jesus who is the greater David. He has fulfilled all that David represented and promised. Jesus is not greater because he descended from David, but it's the other way around. By faith, when we trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, and that faith by the power of the Holy Spirit unites us with, and with him. And in turn, it unites us together as the body of Christ. So then we are in him, and that, all that is his, is ours. If God has heard David's weeping, his pleas, his crying, his prayers, and has accepted them, will he not hear and accept the prayers of those 
who he sees in his son? And the answer is that, to that is without question. Without question. And lastly, we see in the last verse, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Right? The major key of the song has changed. And there's like this great reversal that takes place when he will make all things right and restore us anew. He hears our prayers, but his timing may not always be our timing. His answer may not always be our answer. In fact, most of the time it is not. And if you've been there and you've asked that question, how long, O oh Lord? We can still be assured that he has heard us and he has accepted our prayer, but that does not mean that he will change our circumstance right then and right there at the time that we want him to. If you've been at this for a while, then you know that that's the case. God is not in our debt, and nor should we pray like he is. Yet what we see in verse 10 is not that David's confidence came on the other side of deliverance, but it came in the midst of it. And in this lament, David was changed so that he would endure until the Lord delivered him. And those moments, those days, those months, those years of difficulty that turned into lamenting is not an exercise of wallowing in self-pity. That only makes things worse. But rather, lamenting is an exercise of looking forward and looking to God as he will one day restore and reorient, you, reorient us. David's example, as we have been saying throughout, the song, throughout this psalm, points us to Christ. It points us to the one, again, unlike David. He did not suffer for his own sins like David, but he suffered for the sins of his people. He was the one who willingly take, took upon himself the punishment that was due to the enemies of God. If there's anyone who felt more like Psalm 6 than David, it was Christ. As David was crying out, Lord, do not treat me the way that you are treating my enemies, Jesus says, I will submit to you and to your wrath that you will treat me like your enemies. And he willingly took that upon himself, that, bun that punishment. The one who weeps over those who have rejected him and whose vindication will indeed bring about sh the, the shamed terror on those who hate him. Those who will meet a sudden destruction. So we then want to remember, I think, the words of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, again from 2 Corinthians, this time from chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All of this, all our suffering, discipline, and afflictions are preparing us for what is to come. 
and it may not seem like now, but in comparison, they're actually a very light and momentary. And one day, by the grace of God and by the work of Christ, you will be delivered. Things will be turned around. The enemy will be crushed. Sin will be no more, and death will be destroyed once and forever. So do not keep looking at the ground, as Paul says. Don't, don't look down. Don't look at the ground. Stop looking around all the time. Stop looking in the myriad. Those things that you see are transient. They're passing away, meaning they're dying. Jesus says that it's like the rust and the moth are destroying. But fix your hearts and your minds on the things that are unseen, the eternal. Fix your hearts and minds on Christ. I want to close by saying this, that Jesus is our king. And as our king, he is our example of faithfulness and righteousness and endurance and perseverance. But also, he is our example of deliverance. And that one day, we too will be delivered from this mortal life. The very things that, that David, that was crushing David in Psalm 6, his sin, his enemies, death itself. These are the very things that the better David, Jesus Christ, has crushed. And yet we look to him. Until then, until he comes back, we look to him. And even in lament, we can sing with joy, whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morning new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me, but I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. And all of God's people will say,